Thank you for listening. This is Israel Rebound, a podcast joining listeners in Nebraska and other places to Israel, exploring the ties that bind us through culture, identity, and current events. I'm Liz Feldstern in Jerusalem, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alan Podash in California. Alan, how's it going? Liz, it's great to see you. Things are good. Um, I'm excited for the coming weeks. As you know, Yom Kippur is this week. We just finished Rosh Hashanah. And then my favorite holiday of Sukkot um, coming up in uh, two days after Yom Kippur. I have to say I'm very saddened this year. I'm not able to build a sukkah. I think this is my oh, first no. This is my first year in over 28 years that I haven't built a sukkah. And it's because I'm not in a place where I can build one. Out in the desert, there's so much space. You would think you could build a very big sukkah. I could, except my sukkah is in storage. Mm, yes, one does need the raw materials as well, not just the space, I guess. Um, so the other thing that I, I hope we can discuss today is we're getting we're a month away from uh, elections in Israel. Lots of stuff happening. I wonder if you have an update you can share with us on how you are seeing some of the changes and challenges of the upcoming election. Sure. So as I think we mentioned last time around, the whole election process in Israel is truncated in a sense in comparison to what one would experience in the U.S., both because from the time elections are announced of when they're going to happen until when they take place is often quite short, and because by law, the period of time in which parties are allowed to publicly campaign is limited to the, the last three weeks before the election itself, which means about a week from now, we'll enter that period. So what we have now is sort of the final positioning and legal decisions about exactly which parties can run and which members of Knesset or hopeful members of Knesset can run on each of those parties lists. So that sort of very final um, decision making is happening now ahead of when the public campaigning will start. So I, I could I just jump in for a second. So lots of maneuvering. We mm-hmm. know that the government fell, uh, I don't know, six months ago because of internal conflicts with ideology and positions with individuals and their parties. Is there any impact on this upcoming election with some of these individuals that left their party, collapsed the government, and how they're being treated now? So it does bring up some interesting questions because the small handful of individuals that um, basically, you know, ended the prior government's uh, ruling were because they decided to leave that government and then it no longer had a majority. So what that means is that these people seceded from their then party. Um, And normally, if one secedes from one party, it might be because you are no longer ideologically aligned with that party and you want to join another party that more closely aligns with your values. However, it's meant to happen sort of in, in that order that I just described meaning you are supposed to resign from a party 
and then the government falls, and then maybe you join some other party. But if the government falls, and then you resign from a party and try to join another party, it brings up this question of whether your resignation is really from a place of ideological differences from your previous party, or whether it's political maneuvering based on what you're seeing as a new landscape, right? New party or parties that are likely to have more seats or where you think you can position yourself in in a better place um, come the forthcoming election. So actually, we did have a couple of members of Knesset whose resignations were questionable in terms of whether they happened quickly enough after the fall of the government. Um, And at least one of them, the Central Election Commission decided he is not allowed to run with a different party, and that's a member of Knesset, Chickley. Um, so I think there was one other that the decision was being waited on. I'm not sure where things landed. What is an interesting phenomenon. Was that Edith Stillman? Stillman? Was that the other one? I I don't know if someone was the other one whose secession was called into question. Um, but... So- Let me ask you another question, because I think you touched on something that I thought was pretty interesting. The Central Election Commission, what what is the role of the Central Election Commission? And and are they the main mediators between these individuals and the parties? And do people trust the Central Election Commission? I think that there is trust. I think that people do, by and large, think of them as as a neutral and unbiased uh, adjudicator. I haven't heard people say otherwise. Um, they are the the body that is the one to make decisions when it comes to these very sort of nitty gritty questions. Um, right? It's not a question of larger, you know, law. It's not the kind of thing that would go before the Supreme Court. Um, But for things like whether, you know, a person has followed the steps in the right order to transfer from one party to another, or another topic that was just brought before the election commission recently was whether a particular party, right, meets the requirements in order to stand for election. That's also the kind of question that comes before the commission and that we just had now with the Balad party who was charged um, with that they should not be allowed to stand in the election. And the final decision was that they cannot, they cannot run in this election because they uh, do not acknowledge Israel as a Jewish and Zionist state. So it's interesting. They, they wanted to run in the election. So they clearly acknowledged something, but, and they were in the government you know, the last time around as part of the joint list. But now that they left the joint list and wanted to run separately, the question was brought and they are not allowed to run. I I find that to be incredibly interesting that here you have a party that has been running for many years uh, in the government, all of a sudden are told they can't run because they don't recognize uh, the existence of Israel as a country, but yet they've been a part of the government uh, for many many years, uh, is this a new? Yeah, is this a, 
Yeah, is this a new law that has been passed or a new regulation that's been passed or is it just something that happens every time there's an election? It's not new per se and there are it, and it's not unusual that questions like this would be brought up ahead of an election. Um and just how the commission finds, you know, changes from time to time. Now the fact that Ballad is not being allowed to run in this election doesn't mean that they cease to exist as a party. So come, you know, 18 months from now or whatever it is, when we have another election, they, you know, the question may come up again. And maybe then based on their public statements in the past, you know, 12 months, maybe the election commission will find differently. Um, it's a, it's a very dynamic process, right? The entire election process in Israel has a lot of moving parts. Um, we are in in certain ways of a very litigious society. Now, not not in the same ways as it is in the U.S. Like I think Israelis think of Americans as much more likely to for an individual to sort of bring a lawsuit. So that, don't that's have quite right. as much. Which but is why when it comes to questioning whether somebody else has followed the rules, we're very good at that. Which is why I question the trust of the Central Election Committee or Commission. There seems to be more understanding of the validity of that oversight committee versus what we see in America. So I hope that that's something that is stable within Israel to work out some of these election issues. But it also, you know, poses another question of the obstacles that exist for a party to become a legitimate party within the government. Um yeah, now maybe maybe not a not legitimate might not be the right question might right word to use, but an active player. Right. So I think what you're saying is, you know, on the one hand, what are the hoops that uh a political party has to jump through in order to be allowed to stand for election. On the other hand, recognizing that Israel is exists as a Jewish and Zionist state is a pretty low bar, I think. Um, right? It's not... Uh, look, I don't know exactly what the proceedings looked like, and I don't know what evidence they were looking at that they made the decision that Bala didn't meet that requirement. But I would say there is a big difference between recognizing that that is the the current status and thinking that that is the ideal or thinking that that is the only way or thinking that there should, you know, only be one sovereign state within the current borders of Israel. Like those are all different questions, but to be able to have the basic standpoint that acknowledges that Israel does currently exist as a Jewish and Zionist state is a relatively low threshold for a party to be able to, to stand for election. I, I think. But it also goes to the unique nature of the government of Israel. Since its founding, it has always had representation from minority parties, primarily the Arab-Israeli uh, population. And I think that's mm -hmm. a story that isn't always told well outside of Israel. But, you know, between 8 and 12 percent of the Knesset has historically been represented by members of the um, Arab communities. Right which is maybe a good segue to sort of looking at what polls are saying now in terms of what the makeup of the next uh, Knesset could potentially look like. 
Um, and sort of what you mentioned now, right, the, the Arab parties in the Knesset. So I think the latest polls are showing that the um, joint list, the two thirds of it that still exists and is still allowed to run, will probably earn four seats compared to the six that they had in the previous. So it kind of makes sense, right? There are two out of their three parties, and now they're going to have four out of their six seats. That's pretty stable. And that um, Ra'am, the other Arab party, which, by the way, also was brought up a question of whether they should be allowed to run in the election, kind of with the same accusations or questions that were brought against Balad, but Ra'am was found that they can run. Um, they will probably maintain their four seats. So that's eight seats for, you know, for those two different Arab parties. And the, um, now the remainder of all of the other parties, I mean, we can talk about details in a second for how those numbers play out, but it's important to realize that all of the other parties fall into one of two camps. Right. Either if a right wing government were formed, they would be in that camp or if a center left government were formed, they'd be in that camp. The the one exception that sort of it's not clear where they could possibly go would be Ram, because I am Ram has not aligned itself with either one of those camps or said that they would join. They actually said that they just recently, that they would definitely not be interested in joining a, a right-wing government, whereas a few months ago they were saying that they hadn't ruled it out. Um, so, you know, those parties, although small, may wind up being, really either one of them, as it was sort of the last time around, the what they call the kingmaker, Right, that their four seats make the difference of whether either of the other two lar much larger camps have enough seats to get past the fifty percent, can have those sixty-one seats. Um, so that's kind of how things are playing out. And without going into all of the different parties, I think the numbers now are standing that the sort of center-left block will have a combined total of fifty-seven seats, and the right-wing block would have a combined combined total of 59 seats, right? So each one is just shy of where they would need to be to actually form a government. So so what? which party has the potential for making up either the two seats for the right-wing block or the seven seats for the left-wing block? So at present, it could be either... Sorry, I'm actually, I don't want to say the wrong thing. Um, we can hold off on that until next podcast if you want. We both could do a little I, research. and Yeah, let's yeah. check that because I don't want to say that because they're both at four seats. Right. I know that I'm said that they just recently that they would not consider joining a right-wing Netanyahu-led government. Um, so presumably that means that they would entertain joining a, a left-wing or left-center government. And I don't know what the joint list is saying. So I don't know if it's that they're already counted in that 57. Um, okay. Well, and, we, and which one is the one that we're saying is the holdout. So we can do our own research in our next podcast. We can update our listeners to that. 
Um, we just finished the holiday of Rosh Hashanah, and we've talked last year about this was a Shemitah year. Mm-hmm. Do you mind if we shift from politics to agriculture? Sure. That's kind of the history of Israel, right? Wading our way through politics and agriculture. <laughs> yes. So, so is it a, is there like a celebration of the of the ending of the Shemitah year? You know, I was thinking about that as well, that there should be, and maybe there is, and there's like a special name for this celebration. I, I If there is, I don't know what it is. I'd love for somebody to tell me. Um, but it has ended, right? We had this year of uh, allowing the land in, in certain specific uh, Torah-explained ways to lie fallow and not have new planting and not have new cultivation of agriculture. And now that year from Rosh Hashanah to Rosh Hashanah has just ended. So now is when we'll start to see a lot of new planting. Um, it, it is evident already. You can see it in sort of not, not agriculture like you know, growing fruits and vegetables because living in Jerusalem, I guess I don't see the fields all that often. But in terms of other types of landscaping, you can already see places that were, you know, waiting for the Shemitah year to end so that they could do new planting or, you know, if a new building has been built, the whole outside has been looking pretty brown and sparse because they couldn't put on those finishing touches of doing the landscaping and now they now they can. So that is noticeable. Um, and I think we'll start to feel it in the in the agriculture as well some of the fruits and vegetables that have been imported over the past year will now be locally sourced um and and you know there are various changes that happen it's not like in the olden days like a couple of decades ago what you could get in israel during a shemitah year was was a very reduced from what you could get during a regular year now, between the combination of more import and more, uh, I guess, rabbinic loopholes of figuring out how to actually, yes, be able to have agriculture in the Shemitah year, you don't notice that much of a difference. Um, but it's good that now we finish that and all the agriculture can go back to its sort of normal way of doing things. And, and the ground is healthier. That's what it's supposed to do, I guess so. I, so. <laughs> so I want to just jump in a little bit since I just, you know, came back from Israel a couple of weeks ago. I'm always um, enamored by the variety of fruits and vegetables that I see in the shuk in Machni Yehuda. Uh, and then I picked up an article the other day about uh, black apricots and watermelon plums. So this hybrid creativity of fruits and vegetables in Israel is something that's very fascinating uh, you know, from the consumer's perspective, but the technology that goes into creating these um, hybrid uh, fruits and vegetables is quite interesting. So Israel has been very, very aggressive in the creative arts of of agriculture. Um, is that something that is talked about on a regular basis or just enjoyed? I am. I mean, I think probably more enjoyed. Right? Israelis do pride themselves on having very good fruits and vegetables. I would say there is also a little bit of a, I don't know, snobbishness about how 
fresh one's fruit and vegetables are supposed to be. Um, and actually, I, I, I've noticed it, right, as an import myself, as an American coming with that mindset. So in terms of sort of what foods can sit out for a little bit, you know, if you have a, a buffet or an event or something like that, or what foods you can prepare in advance. So I always think of dairy products as something that should not sit out for too long, right? I'm like, okay, milk, cheeses, they're supposed to be refrigerated. They, you know, if they're out for a little while and they don't get eaten, they need to be tossed. Um, and Israelis tend, again, this is obviously just in my limited anecdotal, but 18 years of experience, Israelis tend to not be very sensitive to dairy products being out, but very sensitive to fruit and vegetables being out and having been cut. Like once you slice a cucumber, they're like, oh no, it was sliced 30 minutes ago. It's not fresh anymore. Whereas I, I mean, Israelis would like be horrified if they heard this, but I certainly sliced vegetables the night before and put them in my kids' lunches. Like, <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think a cucumber that was sliced the night before and then sat in the refrigerator till the next morning is any different. And Israelis find that like, they're they're revolted by this practice like they cannot imagine eating a vegetable that was cut like 12 hours before so different sensitivities and different thoughts about fruits and vegetables but i will definitely have to keep my eye out for the black apricots and the watermelon plums i'll let you know if i find them in the shook because they sound great. cool great well i think that's a great way to end today's podcast knowing that we have Yom Kippur this week and we'll be fasting. So we've watered our... Maybe we can break our fast on some watermelon plums. Or or non-pre-sliced cucumbers. There you go. Well, Liz, thank you very much for being on the podcast today. You are a great uh, contributor to insight on politics and other issues that uh, we try to cover on this podcast. Uh, so I'd like to thank our listeners for listening to Israel Rebound. It's a podcast bringing life in Israel to America, featuring politics, culture, identity, and other wonderful topics like fruit and vegetables. Liz, thank you very much, okay. and we'll see you next week. Thanks, everyone.